Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. We're going to be based primarily in um, Matthew 25. I invite you to turn there. And as you do so, I'll pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your faithfulness, Lord, in giving us life. Thank you, Lord, for not merely giving us life in terms of existence, but giving your Son that we might have eternal life. We're so grateful to you for that, Lord. And we pray that truly you would speak to our hearts as we consider our lives, consider our ways, and all that, Lord, you would have us to do in your service and for your glory. And so bless our time in your word, Lord. And may all of our um, apprehensions um, or our misunderstandings be um, ultimately dissolved by the just clear teaching of your word. And that, Lord, we'd be set free, truly, by the truth that we continue in as your disciples. So bless our time, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants... And entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slowful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see Jesus here speaking about talents. And um, 
A talent in the culture was money. A talent at that time, one talent at that time would have been worth an equivalent of 1.3 million pounds today. So it wasn't like a 10 pence piece. <laughs> it wasn't a pound. It wasn't even a fiver. This was an item of substantial value if you were to consider it in relation to today's value. Now, although the item in question is money, the focus of the parable is not merely money. It's actually that which is valuable in the sight of God entrusted to those who are his servants. And so the focus is not entirely on money. And even if it were, knowing that the scripture says so much about money, would we be wrong to preach on it? You see, if you know anything about us as Calvary Chapel South London, you know that we hardly if ever talk about money. We hardly if ever talk about money, even to our own fault. Now, why do I say that? Because, well, we're not getting bigger offerings and living more plus. No, because we're not being faithful to communicate the full counsel of God. And so we've had to repent of that. And we ask you to forgive us where we have, metaphorically speaking, shortchanged you by not edifying and clarifying with regards to what God says about money and how he feels about it. And so we do ask you to forgive us. I think the last time there was a message that was in any way related to the subject of money was about two years ago. And so that kind of helps to give a bit of perspective. But even so, we recognize that the focus here isn't money. Now, in the book of Matthew, the term kingdom is used 54 times. And the parables are called parables of the kingdom. And we recognize that the kingdom is the, 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 the realm of the rule of the king of kings. There's no such thing as a kingdom apart from a king. And those who are under the rule of the king are recognized to be the kingdom of that king. Now Jesus Christ is the king of kings and king of kings and amen. And so all who are submitted to his rule are a part of his kingdom. And when Jesus came at the beginning of Matthew in chapter 4, in fact even before that John the Baptist was preaching repent. For the kingdom is at hand. Jesus came saying the same thing. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is among you. And so we saw the inauguration of the kingdom. And yet we recognize that the kingdom of God is now, those of us who believe are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, and yet we recognize, although it's now, it's also not yet. We don't have the consummation, the completion of all God's kingdom purposes being fulfilled. And there will come that time. And it's an important thing to, for us to understand, maybe even while we're on the issue of money. Because for so many people, as Christians, it's felt that, well, you know what? I'm above and not beneath. I'm the head, I'm not, I'm not the tail. I'm blessed coming in and going out in the city and in the field. And I'm a king's kid. God has given me the power to get wealth and I'm supposed to be rich. There are a number of problems with that if it's taken out of the context of the entirety of scripture. We are blessed. We are children of the king. And yet we recognize that there is a sense in which 
All of our blessings are not realized right now. All of them. We have a foretaste of glory divine as the songwriter says. And yet, we still have to pay bills. Now, I don't know about you, but I ain't looking forward to paying no bills in paradise when I'm in the presence of God. <laughs> the, new, the new heaven and the new earth. I expect that that's going to be dealt with. So that's, that's an extra blessing for me to be able to look forward to. You understand what I'm saying? And so the issue of appreciating that the kingdom is now, and we are inheritors, and we do um, uh, obtain a blessing through Christ now, and yet it's not entirely fulfilled now, but will be. There will be a point when we will be absolutely and utterly blessed in a flawless fashion. There will be no more trials no more tears, no more weeping, no more sickness, no more death. Amen. Amen? Praise be to God. And so we look forward to that time, thanking God for the, the grace that he bestows upon us now, knowing that he has promised to keep us. And whatever that means for each of us as individuals, God has promised to keep us. Regardless of what we go through, God has promised to keep us. He is faithful to finish the work that he started. Unto the day of Christ Jesus. Amen, bruv. I'm with you. And so we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We are not of this world. And as a result, we have new views. We are a new creation, not just spiritually, but our minds are renewed. And we even experience the, the, the touch of God's renewing in our bodies. How many people can testify that, you know what, since you've become a Christian, you, you're more healthy than you were before? Because we know you used to burn, uh, you know what I'm saying, bro? You used to burn the candle at both ends. And that was just raving. Let alone the workaholic business. And then the, 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 all of the other kind of um, additional things that you might add to your, your menu during the course of a week. And so you experience redemption being worked out in your life in a real way. The fact that actually, you know what, even, I'm, even, even now I'm physically better than I was. And so there is a newness that takes place. And it's important that we appreciate that it affects every single area of our lives. There's no aspect or area of our life as a Christian that ought to be off limits to the Lord. So in the book of, the book of Revelation we see in chapter 3, Behold, I stand, on the door, stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens to me, I will come in. Now, you know that was written to Christians. We hear that it's quoted in terms of evangelism and so on. And Jesus is standing, knocking at the door of your heart. Well, first and foremost, we need to apply that to ourselves as Christians. Imagine Jesus saying to the churches in the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is on the outside of the heart that he owns maybe it's the certain room of the heart that we've kept closed hoping that he's not going to inquire maybe it's that room where the details of our bank balance is kept or our career aspirations or the use of our skills and our abilities. Mm. No room is supposed to be off limits to Christ. If he is Lord, he is Lord of all. Amen? So, at the beginning of this, we see, fundamentally, the issue of stewardship. And we're going to focus on verse 14 and throughout the series, 
we will unpack this parable in various ways. Focusing on verse 14, it talks about a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. That's the fundamental principle of stewardship. That as disciples of Christ, ones who have submitted to Christ, we are now stewards of all that God has, all that God is entrusted to us. We're stewards. And what is a steward? Someone entrusted with another's property and charged with the responsibility for managing it in the owner's best interest. Entrusted with another's property, charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. So the first thing we highlight is the fact that God is the owner of all things. God is the owner of all that we have. Our time our treasure and our talents. Furthermore, it doesn't just stop there. God is the owner of our lives. Furthermore, it doesn't just stop there. God is actually the owner of all things. God owns all things and throughout scripture, he stakes his claim. We recognize that the Lord, by virtue of being our creator, is the owner of all things. Look at these verses here in First Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Oh my gosh. Superlative adjectives. <laughs> Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Amen. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O oh Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And what's the natural response to that? And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. See, God is over all. And we see in the garden that he gave man dominion. He entrusted to man. And so this is why even now, people who are not in right relationship with God continue to go forth and to multiply and to have dom dominion over this world. Inventing new things, developing new experiences, learning things about the environment and harnessing it and utilizing it for our greater good because God by reason of the creation mandate has given man permission to do so and so God is the owner of all our entire life is God's and really, the only difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the, um, the, the, the believer has come to the point where, you know what, we've humbly submitted to the truth of that fact. The all that I am and all that I have is yours, O oh Lord. Our life is God's. And so, we see that we are stewards, we have been entrusted with much that is valuable. We have been entrusted with much that is valuable. And 
we give some attention today to time, treasure and talents and over the next few weeks. But furthermore, the greatest thing we've been entrusted with is what? Any suggestions? The, thank you B, the gospel. The apostle Paul says we have this treasure being the gospel, the ultimate, the highest prize in earthen vessels. The gospel is that which we've been entrusted with and is the most valuable, most prized possession. Or is it? Well, that's what this series will actually begin to um, help identify in our own hearts and lives. As stewards, we appreciate, as, the master, as with the master in the parable, that actually our master is coming back. So it's not that we've just been entrusted with precious cargo in order to do well with it, but actually there's going to come a point when we will need to stand and give an account for what we have done with it. We will, the, the master is going to come back and he's going to rock back on his big throne and he's going to say, okay, now what have you done with what I have committed to your care? What have you done with it? Are you looking forward to his return? Are you looking forward to the fact that Jesus said, I'll be back in a Hebrew accent. You see, scripture is absolutely replete with references to the return of Christ. Now for some of you, this may be a kind of distant concept that You've maybe even come across as you've read, but you've not really thought about it in real terms and what it, what it might mean. But Jesus is actually coming back bodily, physically coming back. Now we appreciate his presence is here with us by his spirit. He said to the disciples at the, at the end of Matthew 28, and lo, I will be with you now and forevermore, even unto the end of the world. So... There is a sense in which we understand God is present with us by his spirit, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, who was crucified, raised bodily, ascended to heaven, is coming back. Listen. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is what the angel said in Acts chapter 1. As the disciples stood there gazing, watching Jesus ascend until the cloud obscured their vision and they couldn't see him anymore. They said, why are you standing here gazing? <laughs> this same Jesus who you've seen ascend is going to come back. In like manner. And so the upshot is, get on with it. Don't stand around gazing, get on with it. And so that was the testimony given by angels when Jesus ascended. Listen to what Jesus himself said. And if you would turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. <laughs> now in verse 3, the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, Tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. Now they were expecting that Jesus, who they recognized and accepted to be the Messiah, was going to ride 
on Jerusalem on a white horse, on a charger. And then they were going to be flanking him and they were going to go in and take the city and take back Jerusalem and Israel from under the authority of the Romans. And he was going to establish his kingdom as the Messiah and it's all good. And so they're like, when's this going to happen? When's it all going to go down? In verse 27, and you have to read this chapter in your own time. We don't have time to go through it all verse by verse. Jesus says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then in verse 30 he says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is speaking of his return. And in this chapter he deals with the the characteristics that will identify that season in which he is due to return. In verse 36 he says, That day and hour no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That day or hour. What was my man's name? He was making them prophecies about, yeah, Jesus is going to come October, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, that's a sure and quick way to spot a false prophet. Verse 42. Jesus says this in light of that truth. He is coming and no one knows the day or the hour. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Hmm. Stay awake, for you, and he's talking to his disciples, you know. For you do not know that day when the Lord is coming. Now, why would he say to his own disciples... Stay awake. In verse 44, he says, Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So why should we as disciples be ready for this unexpected return? I mean, we're saved, right? We can look forward to his, we can get the flags ready. You know, get get our tweets ready. Facebook status is already saved in our notes. Jesus is back! Yeah! It's on! So why should we be alert and ready by this unexpected moment? That's to come upon us. We look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. You ever remember when you were smaller, right? And your parents were going out. Your mum was going out and said, okay, look, you know what? I'm I'm going down to the market. And I'm I'm going shopping or wherever. And um, when I come back, I expect you to have this, 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 and this done. You remember those instructions, right? And you remember those moments when you would sit down and you were just like, what you tell you, thinking, yeah, I got time. (laughs) Go out of the kitchen making sandwiches, (laughs) munching, watching cartoons or whatever. And then you look at the clock and you think, whoa! And, you, and you, hear, you hear a noise outside and you think, whoa! And you jump up and you start trying to scurry around, tidy bed, run hoover. Because you know, if you ain't done or at least doing what you were supposed to, it's worries. Can you feel that in the text right here? Can you feel it? 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now is that time. Now is that time when Jesus comes back and there's not going to be any need for ministering the gospel. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, oh, my master's on a long one. God, let me just kick back. Furthermore, let me get some of them others to do the work. And begins to beat his fellow servants. And eats and drinks with the drunkards. You can just see the carousing and the cavorting going on in the clubs. <gasps> Hands in the air. <laughs> DJ, wheel up that tune. Yeah, you can just see it, right? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. Imagine Jesus comes back. You're in the club, you know. <laughs> This time sound system starts playing up. Some, some strange noises start coming through the speakers and then all you hear is the trump of God. <laughs> this time you're worried about that Rihanna tune. Rihanna tune. Listen. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. Now this is deep. Hmm. And we'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we're there, I'll give a quick explanation. It will come a bit more clearer as we get through the main parable that we're going through. This isn't indicating or suggesting salvation by works. So, unless we, as some of the other sects and beliefs hold, unless we are out knocking doors and you know, preaching the gospel, then we, we fear that we won't be saved. That's not what this is advocating. That's not what this is promoting. But what it's saying is, somebody who is a faithful servant, someone who is genuinely saved, we are, will be about the Father's business. And so the works don't proceed salvation or guarantee salvation, but they flow from and are as a result of salvation. Amen? And so if this individual has just been doing their own thing, now they don't have to be in the club. They don't have to be in the cinema, whiling away our time with pleasure and entertainment. It don't have to be that. It, for some of us, it could be work. For some of us, it could be academics. Some of us, it's that innate desire to get rich. Hmm. Giving ourselves to everything apart from the fervorance of the kingdom then the question has to be asked, so are you actually really a part of this kingdom that you claim to be a part of but have no interest or desire to promote or forward? Kind of, hmm, it's a strange picture, help me. And so, the Apostle Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is speaking to the judgment of Christians. This is speaking about the judgment of Christians. This is not speaking about the judgment of the unbeliever or the unsaved for sin. 
This is speaking about the evaluation, the assessment of our lives as Christian, Christians when we get to the end and we step into eternity and stand before Jesus. Our sin has already been judged. The scripture says in Romans 5 and also in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we have not been appointed unto wrath. We have not been appointed to relationship with Christ in order to endure and incur the wrath of God at the end of that. No. Christ took the wrath of God for us. And yet we will still be judged. We will still be evaluated. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive what is due for what we have done in the body. In preparing this, I was thinking about that and it proper put the wind up me. And it made me think about all of the aspects of my life in which I haven't been faithful. And it made me think about all of the loose ends in my life as a Christian that are not to the glory of God and, and furthermore bring shame or dishonor to the name of the Lord. And it's motivated me to think, I don't want to stand before Jesus on that day when I look at my Savior. Nail scars, hole inside. Remember, Thomas put his whole hand in the hole in Jesus' side. Jesus said, look, See, see the, the, the holes where the nails were. Who knows if his appearance will be actually fully like the suffering that he endured. With all the scar tissue and all of the welts. And who knows, there is some who would suggest that based on scripture, the reason that they didn't even recognize the risen Jesus was because he bore all the scar tissue and the wounds from his suffering. Imagine looking at Jesus, our Savior who suffered, who gave his all, and then having to account for our unfaithfulness, for not honoring him and not representing him. Just a shame in itself would be so deep. The pain from knowing that I'm looking at Jesus and I can see evidence of his suffering for my salvation. And I couldn't even deny myself. I couldn't even rep him. Wow. That concerns me. I don't know about you. That concerns me. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so the question is, knowing that the master has gone on a journey, knowing that our lives are made up of a series of moments, which in this life have a finite end. This life, this season of our existence, has a definite end. We don't know when that will be. It may be our death or it may be Christ's return, whichever comes first, but it's sure to come to an end. Knowing this, knowing that the Master's coming back, what do we do with our lives? You see, the way we view time will dictate our attitude towards everything we do. Absolutely. It completely affects our faithfulness or unfaithfulness as stewards. Because so often we kick back and we think, well, I've got time. We don't know. Jesus could come tomorrow. All of the prophecy indications haven't been fulfilled. (laughs) 
Jesus could come back at any time. Furthermore, as we know, we could die at any moment. So whichever comes first, both one or the other is sure to happen. When we don't know. So what do we do with our lives? What do we do with our time? Because each moment that we have, each now, because really that's all we can really compute. We talk about tomorrow like we know. Yeah, you know, tomorrow I'm going to jump on a bike, I'm going to go for a ride. Rain comes, wash out that plan. When I get to work tomorrow, X, Y, and Z, and then there's a whole load of different things to respond to, and then you, you do X, but that's it. That's our lives. That's the reality of our lives. What happened yesterday? Some of us can barely remember. Let alone last year, 10 years ago. What we have is now, this moment. And our life is a series of moments. And what we do with each moment of time defines the measure of our life. It defines the substance and sum total of our lives. And so think for a minute. Think for a moment. How do you use your time how do you live your life to most glorify Christ? Do you live your life to most glorify Christ? Is that the top of your agenda in each moment? Is that your priority in each moment? Because this is what we're called to evaluate. This is what we are called to give attention to. Some people in some cultures have the understanding that time is a circular experience. And it goes through different phases and that's the nature of the world and it will always go through these different phases. Some cultures see time as a spiral. And it's, there's a point at which you will always come back to but just a bit worse than before. And a point that you'll always come back to and it, some people talk about the golden age. And that phrase comes from a, a worldview shared by the Greeks where they recognize that at one point in history there was a golden age and the aim is to try and get back to this golden age. But we recognize God has revealed that time is a straight line that has a starting point and has an ending point and he is the master of it. And there is much to rejoice in and there's much hope that we're able to gain from understanding that. Especially when we're going through the hardship, right? And we're going through the trials. It's like my grand used to say, it may be long, but it won't be forever. It won't be forever. How do we know? Because God has revealed it. But knowing there is this finite end, it ought to dictate to us knowing that there is a finishing line to come and we don't even know when we're going to hit it it ought to dictate to us with an urgency how we live our lives this fact is communicated in Luke 16 if you want to turn there with me Luke 16 verses 1 to 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, 
What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He answered, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth who will entrust to you the true riches and if you have not been faithful in what is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so we see in this parable, Jesus highlighting the experience of this manager. In verse 8, he called him the dishonest manager. <clears throat> And yet recognized that he was commended for his shrewdness. So what's happening here? You've got this manager. He's running the business for his master. And it's regarded that he was adding on top of people's bills. So there would be that which they owed and then that which he added on top for his own pocket. Now, it's considered that the master saw this, recognized this, and said, hmm, my man's shortchanging me out of what <laughs> I could and should be getting. He's merely a manager. He doesn't own anything that these people have benefited from, wheat, oil, whatever. And he's taking the cream off the top. Got to go. And so he prepares to fire the manager. And the manager being aware of this, you know those kind of lunchroom conversations. Boy, you know what I heard the boss talking about you, you know, bruv. Game's up. I'm just letting you know because I've got love for you like that. You, you know that, right? <laughs> this time they're really looking for that position. But the manager became aware of it. And he was like, hmm, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to be out of a job. I'm not trying to become no laborer, and I can't be dealing with the begging. So you know what? I'm going to go, and I'm going to show these people some favor. I'm going to show them some kindness, show them, show them some love, so that when I'm out of a job, I can go back to them and do business with them. Because they always look at me as a good guy. I reduce their debt, I reduce their bill. Of course they're going to have time for me. Set up my own company on my own. Child, who needs this job anyway? And so that's the mentality. Now why has Jesus highlighted this? It's a kind of, it seems like a, a strange story for Jesus to be promoting. Well, Jesus wasn't promoting the means justifies the end. 
He wasn't promoting pragmatism. Just do what you got to do as long as you get the results. That's not what Jesus was promoting. If anything, it was an exercise in compare and contrast. So this ungodly, dishonest steward recognized that his time was short. And in order to prepare for his future, he took shrewd, (laughs) quite smart steps. And yet, in verse 8, Jesus says, The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. See, people do for their own self-satisfaction or glorification. People engage in such ingenious and creative and effective means of making a name for themselves, making money for themselves, and so on and so forth. And yet, we as Christians are so apathetic, so lethargic, when it comes to considering the real future, considering the transaction from this world to the next. We've got a more glorious future to prepare for but we're not on it. That's what Jesus is saying. They're just trying to better themselves and their future in this life. Look how they go hard. But the sons of light. And so he gives an instruction. Make friends for yourselves in verse 9 by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, use the wealth and the things of value that you have in this life to invest in the furtherance of the kingdom. Only what you do for Christ will last. Your skills, your your money, your time, your abilities, your, your aspirations, let them be kingdom focused. Eternal focus. The only thing we can take to heaven with us when we step out of this life is are the souls of those people that we've influenced, quote unquote. That we've had effect on, who our life and testimony and witness and has gone on to impact in some way, whether directly or indirectly. They're the only things that are going to translate into eternity. Everything else is going to burn. The house, the car, the reputation, it's all going, it's gone, it's nothing. And so we're to have that heaven's mentality. Have that heaven's mentality. Someone put it like this. It's like trying to make a foreign currency transaction. So imagine you go to somewhere like um, Romania. As far as I understand, the Romanian currency is such that you can't take it out of the country. Is that right, sir? You guys went. You can't take the Romanian currency out of the country. So whatever you do there, you go there as a visitor, you make money, you've got to find some way to translate that out of the country because you can't take it with you. I'm a businessman. I go to Romania. I can't take the currency, the cash out of the country. But there are ways in which I can convert that into other commodities so that it can be shipped out, transferred out, and be of value in my own country. We can't take cash with us. We're not going to take time with us. There will be none. All of our talents will be fulfilled. There will be no need for them in the presence of God. (laughs) He's everything. What have we got? And so the idea is to invest these things in ways that will translate, that will convert into that which is of eternal worth. Invest in the kingdom, invest our lives in the kingdom. 
John Tillotson was former Archbishop of Canterbury towards the end of the 17th century. And he said this, He who provides for this life but takes not care for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. We live in a culture where we're told we got to make it happen now. We've got to, you know, do all that we can to get all that we can. Can all that we get and burn all the rest. For a moment, life is but a vapor. And the glory of man is like the flower of the field. Passes away. And so we are to give ourselves to an eternal agenda and that is to to be the the focus of our aspirations that is to be the focus of our priorities the eternal agenda and it starts with how we use our time now how do we use our time as I draw to a close famous last words how do we use our time So you see this pie chart here? It represents the average use of our time. The biggest segment on that chart is 29%. Any guesses as to what that might be? Sleep? (laughs) You know what? That's at a conservative estimate. That's at seven hours a night. I know some people, they can't go without eight hours a night. Like minimum. Try to talk to them seven and a half hours. So sleep. We've got 27%. Any suggestions as to what that might be? Work. True talk. Work. Okay. We've got 19%. No, let me come back to that one. 17%. 17%. Any suggestions as to what that might be? <laughs> now, I was going to say, who said that so I could see just <laughs> how much of their time they actually utilize? <laughs> you might look at me and say that, but 17%, well, it actually. Hmm. Huh? <laughs> I'm going to come back to that one because I don't know if you're going to believe it when you see it Um, 8% 8% so we've had work somebody said watching telly alright watching telly is on there but it's not 8% now that's a problem right already 8% is the smallest one on there watching telly is on there but it's not that Okay. Let's... So sleep is the biggest one. Work is next. Watching television. Watching television. And that don't include YouTube, Facebook, all that kind of business. Watching TV is 19%. Oh, sorry, my bad. 17%. Yeah, that's right. Health and hygiene. And so that includes... (laughs) I don't know if that's for men or for women. It includes eating. So it's health and hygiene. All all personal health and hygiene. Includes eating, exercise, shopping, use of the bathroom, and so on. Ironing clothes, blah, 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 blah. Washing clothes. And so the 19% is what represents the free time that we have. Now, even looking at that, you'd think to yourself, wow, really and truly, in the course of a month, which is what this represents, there's a lot of time spent on stuff. Um, A lot of which is stuff that we may not even want to, 
or even really truly value. I mean, watching TV for all that time. And so this is a quite a revealing glance at what we do with our lives and what we do with our time. Apart from sleeping, the biggest thing is work in terms of the use of our time. And it raises an issue as we consider, Lord, how do I use my time to most glorify you, to most honor you? It raises the issue, our work, is there a way in which it can be given or used for the glory of God as my primary objective? Some might feel as though, well, you know what, I'm not of a quote-unquote religious vocation. The work that I do isn't in any way spiritual, and so therefore, I can't see how it is. But I've got a work to live, right? Although some people live to work. Even so, there was once a time when the word for a person's work was less commonly called a career and more commonly called a vocation. What's the difference? A career is that... (laughs) You hear the phrase careering along. It's that, that road that you run on. And you know what? What purpose? Who knows? Where it's going? Who knows? But it's that road that you run on. That's your career. The vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means a calling. And back in the 17th century, and even before that, they recognized that a person's job was their vocation. And a person's job was to be their vocation. And whether it was in law or health or design or it was such that you genuinely had a sense of God's call. In the sense that God's given you skills, he's given you ability and more so he's given you a sense of purpose as to how that is able to be used for his glory. In Colossians it says, do all things to the glory of God. And so what we do is able to be done to the glory of God if we are intentional about it. And one of the ways, even if it's not directly impacting on kingdom building, one of the ways in which it can contribute to kingdom building and the the fervence of God's kingdom purposes is by taking from the money that we spend our time earning and contributing it to the work of the kingdom. Some people are called to directly engage in the work of the kingdom, even in a quote-unquote full-time capacity, although we're all full-time Christians, right? And some people indirectly. We saw in the Old Testament the Levites, they were not allotted a portion of the land because the Lord was their portion. And so the rest of the the tribes supported the Levites in order to give themselves to the greater need which was serving God in a direct day-to-day sense. Not everyone's called to that, but we're all called to live for a kingdom agenda. And so... Time, talent, and treasure. We're all given the same number of hours in a day. But there is an expectation that we may use them differently. Just as with the servants in the parable of the talents. There was an expectation that what they received, according to their abilities, according to the master's choosing, was such that it would be used differently. And the outcomes may have been different, but the issue was not success, but faithfulness. Well done, you good and faithful servant. And so how are you being faithful with the time that God has given you?
in order to use it for a kingdom agenda. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you have given us so much. You've entrusted us with this glorious gospel in order that we would truly do an eternal work with our finite lives. And so we pray that you would lead us, that you would stir our hearts, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd keep before us, Lord, the true appreciation and understanding that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be called to account for our lives. And so may we run hard, may we run well. Today is the London Marathon, Lord, we're in a lifelong marathon. Pressing towards the prize that mark a high call in Christ Jesus. Laying hold of what we've been laid hold of for. And so, Lord, we do ask that you strengthen us by your grace. And I pray for anyone today, Lord, who they actually don't know what they're supposed to do with their life. They don't know what they're supposed to do with their time. Maybe because they don't know you. Pray, Lord, that today that they will truly come into a relationship with you. That they would submit to the God of the glorious gospel. And that they would find newness of life, a new identity, a sense of purpose through you, our maker. Thank you for this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, God.